Season two of Since Sliced Bread was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic, so it is not discussed in any of the episodes. We realize, however, that this is an ongoing story that could impact these food producers featured in this season. At the end of the season, we'll be discussing how the pandemic has impacted the food industry. I remember in the early days, I got introduced to, you know, one of the head of Safeway Natural by one of my contacts and mentors. And I think it was second or third year. And he's like, guys, do you understand what you're getting into? And at that time, I was, I didn't care. We were so laser focused on our, our product and our idea that I was like, what is this guy talking about? Welcome to Scent Sliced Bread. I'm your host, Charlotte Atchley, Senior Editor of Baking and Snack. In season two, we're talking to accidental bakers and snack makers. These everyday people had an idea, no experience, and a lot of gumption, and jumped in and found success disrupting the baking and snack industries. Today, we're talking to Junia Rocha, founder of Brazi Bites. After moving to the U.S. from Brazil, Junia missed her family's light, fluffy cheese bread. She called her mom, asked for the family recipe, and the rest is history. Welcome to Scent Sliced Bread, Junia. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. So, Junia, you came to the United States from Brazil to pursue a career in civil engineering. Tell me how you went from civil engineering to owning your own snack company. You know, Brazilian cheese bread is the most popular snack food in Brazil and throughout South America. It's really a staple that was part of my life growing up. And so after being in the U.S. for several years, I realized that there was a huge opportunity. The product wasn't available here in a way that Americans could understand. But then people would travel down to Brazil and South America and would totally fall in love with it. And it was one of the memorable, it's, it was always one of the most memorable pieces of the trip. And so I really saw that opportunity and was at a point in my career that I was ready to try something new. And, uh, and then I wanted, you know, that's how I started Brazi Bites. So what need did you see in the marketplace when you um, started making your cheese bread that made you think this could be a business? There were a few things about this product and our approach to it that we felt we could fill a gap in the marketplace. So one of them was, this is a product from another country who is beloved and it's everywhere and it's popular and it was not in here in the U.S. yet in a way that was widely consumed. And because the product is really approachable and easy to understand, you know, the cheese bread, because people don't like... Even though it's Brazilian and it's gluten-free, it's made with tapioca flour, there's sort of like an approachability of the concept, right? So we felt like there is an opportunity here. The other opportunity was naturally gluten-free. So I found the Brazibites 10 years ago, gluten-free was just getting started, right? Gluten-free still had a really bad rep. It tasted bad and consumers were kind of shying away from it unless you had celiac disease. But we felt like we could bring a naturally gluten-free product that was really tasty. And the third one was better for you. And the better for you piece was um, a lot about like the founder's lifestyle. You know, we shop better for you. We care about what we put in our food and our ingredients. And so we felt like there was a gap to bring this concept to the U.S. market 
with those exact attributes. That's really exciting. And you've seen some pretty exponential growth in the past 10 years. You seem to have like really, um, your predictions seem to be correct that this was going to fill an unmet need. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, when you found a company, you make a lot of assumptions and you trust that the market and the timing is going to meet you where you are. And sometimes that, that doesn't materialize. Uh, for us, it did. So there's a lot of timing luck in a way that the, the when we brought the concept to market, our approach to the branding and the messaging was really important. That was a huge, you know, reason for our success. And um yeah, there's been there's been a ton of timing and market response and the fact that gluten-free became, you know, so important in the consumer lifestyle. We always looked at our brand. We never branded ourselves as a gluten-free company. So that was a differentiator. We're a delicious product that's Latin inspired that happens to be naturally gluten-free. But we felt like our products were so uniquely delicious and wowed the consumer so much that all it would take was one gluten-free member in the household for everybody else to fall in love with it. So we really saw growth around that. While a lot of other gluten-free brands just kind of created a product for celiac um, consumers, which is great as well, we were able to say, hey, look, we are delicious and happens to be gluten-free. There's so many cases of our consumers where the gluten-free member of the family is fighting, saying, don't eat all my brazi bites, and then it just becomes a staple. We were able to really use that, you know, that piece to grow the brand over the years. In 2015, Junia and Cameron appeared on an episode of ABC's Shark Tank, where they pitched Brazi Bites as a viable investment for the sharks. While all of the sharks loved the snack, it was Lori Grenier who invested $200,000 for a 16.5% stake in the business. But Junia stresses it was the exposure of being on the show that really sent Brazy Bites to the next level. So you've been around for 10 years. I am about five years into the business. You, in 2015, you appeared on Shark Tank. And can you describe to me what was the where was the business at before Shark Tank? And then how did Shark Tank kind of launch you to the next level? Before we were in Shark Tank, we had been in business for about five years and we had grown the brand to about a thousand grocery stores nationwide. We had begun to have an understanding of the industry. We were already at multiple re regions of Whole Foods. We had distribution at Kroger. We had a lot of the foundation elements of the business already in. But, you know, we were very small and we were very sort of grassroots and really trying to break through. Um, we were just obsessed with the idea that so many products that are delicious and great ideas come in the marketplace every year. You know, we see we go to Expo West, we see how competitive and how many amazing ideas and, uh, you know, smart founders out there pushing their products out. But we were just laser focused on the fact that if you don't get discovered, by a larger audience. You just don't have time to create a viable business. And so Shark Tank was pivotal for this brand. You know, we had been out there and we knew we had something special. Consumers were responding really well to our offerings, but not enough people knew about us for the business to be viable. So from a revenue perspective, to give you an idea, we were just a little bit under a million dollars at the time. So we weren't tiny, but you know, that wasn't enough to break even and, you know, 
just thrive, uh, but we were well on our way. Uh, what Shark Tank did for us was the exposure that we need at the perfect time for the brand. So we, you know, we aired on Shark Tank. It was around Thanksgiving, so perfect time of the year to consume our product. Nine million viewers watched the show, and it was a smashing hit, smashing hit. Um, what followed Shark Tank was we sold out nationwide in about two or three days. Three days after that, all of our distributors sold out. People literally, like, it's so hard to have that level of impact when you are selling a CPG item in a freezer grocery stores, right? You can have a great PR feature and a great article, but for people to actually get in their cars, drive to a store, purchase the product. And so that show did that for us. So let's go back a little bit in time to when you're first starting out and talk about the product and the manufacturing of the product and kind of what that journey was like, because... You and your husband started this business and neither of you have a background in food manufacturing. What was that process like going from making this product for yourself to a commercial kitchen to then eventually going into um, your own production and finally ending up with a co-manufacturer? Can you talk about some of the challenges not having a background in food manufacturing um, posed to you in that journey and so how you kind of filled in the gaps of your knowledge? So the first year in it, that, you know, post idea was all about trying to figure out how we're going to make this product. So, you know, you don't even see us generate any revenue or even being in stores on year one. It was a grueling process of understanding how to manufacture the goods. Um, we took multiple trips to Brazil. We purchased Brazilian equipment. We began understanding the science of this particular product to see how we could produce the highest quality with the best ingredients that we had and, and all of that. Um, and so we were able to launch in a, in a commercial kitchen here in Portland, Oregon, where we're based. We started making the product ourselves. So Cameron and myself would go to the commercial kitchen at night and we would make the product with the Brazilian equipment that we had purchased and all of you know, the other equipment in the, in the kitchen. We were in that space really learning the manufacturing process for about a year. It was very grueling, a lot of learning. Um, we had to engage with food consultants from Brazil at that time to really figure out, you know, gluten-free tapioca flour, those ingredients behave differently, and there's a lot of science that goes behind it. So we learned that process and were able to begin sort of like a mini scaling of the, of the process. We never wanted to make this product by hand. We never did because we felt like that was just an impossible task. We have done many things manually over the years, and still there's a huge manual component, but never the rolling and the cutting of the product. So that was the piece we were trying to solve from day one was how do we cut this dough, which is replacing the rolling by hand, you know, when you're highly artisanal. And so we, we spent that first year in that commercial kitchen and started making product ourselves, and started selling into stores. Beyond that, we started. We, we realized we needed to grow a little bit. We moved from that space to a shared warehouse where we then were able to partner with three other small manufacturers at the time and share equipment, share overhead, began hiring our first employees. And we were in that space for a couple of years, started to scale a little bit more. You know, we got distribution at Sprouts 
begun going, you know, kind of sort of like almost a national footprint. And we realized that we needed to scale. We, at that time, considered going to a co-packing model, but didn't find anybody who knew, you know, the, the equipment, who knew how to make this. So the next step for us was we build our own facility. So from that shared space, we set up our own facility, which was about 5,000 square feet. And we bought equipment, we you know, hired employees and really began to run an operations you know, based brand. Um, and that was a great time. It was a lot of learnings. We were able to scale to the next phase of the business. But then when we went on Shark Tank, it really got that massive exposure you know, in front of millions of people, it was so like, you know, the, the growth then at that moment began to be so different than what we had experienced up until that moment that that's when we felt like it was the right time to go to a co-packing model. What were some of, you said that you learned some lessons um, when you opened that 5,000 square foot facility. Can you share what some of those were and what some of those challenges um, were that you had to overcome? There was, you know, I think in, in the scope of self-manufacturing for a brand, there are lots of challenges and great things that come with it. You know, biggest challenges are it's time-consuming to run manufacturing, right? It's you're managing people. There's so many, like, certifications and layers, and the bigger you get, more complex it gets. So when you're starting that process, like, we were not in the food industry and having to learn, the bigger we were getting, more complex the systems were getting. And then the, the sales side was also needing us. Um, and so I think that managing people and scaling at this speed, when a brand gets the massive exposure that Browsybytes got um, and having to scale that internally while managing a sales and marketing force was very challenging. But on the other hand, um, there's so many great things. And I think that part of our success was because we had manufacturing in-house for so many years prior to really scaling the brand and moving to a co-packing model. What benefits did manufacturing in-house kind of provide you during that sweet part of time? The biggest thing for me is the focus on product and obsession really that we had that carries through to today, but we were so intimate and so close with the product and it just, it needed to be perfect. It still needs to be perfect. But it was that sort of like, you know, you're right there seeing every bag that moves onto the pallet and goes to the stores. And that level of intimacy is so important for, you know, brands in our space today that really need to meet the consumer's needs. And it's highly competitive. That was the biggest thing. And then your ability to flex more the ups and downs of demands um, when you're starting out was really good for us. Really, really good. So, you know, maybe we, there was a gap there and it was easier for us to manage, or there was a new flavor being developed. It was very seamless and easy to manage. Now it's more complex. You know, there's a lot more parties involved to do product development and things like that. So that, that several things that, that are good about that model as well. We'd like to take a short break to tell you about another Soslin Publishing Company publication that launched this year, Food Entrepreneur. As a supplement to Food Business News, 
Food Entrepreneur will offer a deep dive into the disruption caused by emerging brands like those interviewed in Season 2 of Scent Sliced Bread. So if you're enjoying these conversations and want to learn more about emerging brands and new products, be sure to sign up for Food Entrepreneur on foodbusinessnews.net. And now, back to the conversation. So you get to a place where you have to take production out to a co-packaging system because there's just so much demand. What was that process like? Because not only is your product gluten-free, but it's so unique. And I'm sure your production process is very um, particular. What was it like trying to find a co-packager that would be able to produce the product and also work well with you and Cameron? We had an opportunity where we found a a great partner, like kind of, this was like leading into that moment of really rapid increase in demand for the product. So we got lucky with timing that it happened a few months before and we were already in dialogue and we had found a great partner that understood gluten-free. So that kind of checked that box, understood like requirements, understood better for you was capable of meeting us where we were. But it was a very sort of scary few months and challenging process. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, luckily, it was in our you know home state. We were able to stay very close and really be an integral part of that transition. But, but it didn't come like without its challenges. We knew it was the right thing for the company long term because we just simply were not going to be able to scale as fast as the market was responding to the brand. But um, it was very stressful for several months, I would say almost like the first year. And then, you know, after that time and a grueling process of integration, they got really good. They got really good. For um, our listeners who might not be familiar with your product, can you just give a little description of what um, it's made with tapioca flour? It's a cheese bread. Um, it's a frozen dough product, right? That's sold in the freezer aisle. It's a frozen dough product. And I should say that Brazi Bites as a brand now has multiple products. We're a Latin inspired, better for you food company. Our first product that really created the brand was Brazilian cheese bread. And um, the product is essentially sold in the frozen dough format and it's round, like sort of a ball shape, golf ball sized, and it's bite sized, very snackable. And it's sold as frozen dough the consumer just takes home and bake. It's really easy, it's really convenient. It's made tapioca flour is the base and there's a lot of delicious cheeses in there. And um, we sell it in multiple flavors. Today, the brand has multiple flavors of Brazilian cheese bread, as well as a line of uh, frozen empanadas that are also bite-sized and take and bake. It sounds like you guys have done a lot of growth and innovation to keep the um, company dynamic and interesting to consumers. Most definitely. And that, that just actually came recent. You know, for many, many years, all we did was Brazilian cheese bread. It was, we were hyper laser focused on this one product line and we had maybe three flavors, four flavors max. Um, we've rotated some in and out as, you know, um, we saw some things being better received on the marketplace, but we were really laser focused on this and only the last 18 months we started to innovate. So the brand was really built on one product idea that we really went all into this. 
The original Brazi Bites product, Brazilian cheese bread, is naturally gluten-free because it's made with tapioca flour instead of wheat flour. Junia launched her product in 2010 when gluten-free was just starting to get the attention of mainstream consumers. Having a naturally gluten-free snack that was also delicious propelled her business in the beginning. The frozen Brazilian cheese product is available in four flavors, cheddar and parmesan, garlic asiago, three cheese pizza, and cinnamon churro. The company has since expanded to Latin American inspired snacks with its range of gluten-free empanadas, available in black bean and cheddar, chickpea veggie, chicken and cheese, and beef and bean. In 2018, Junia sold a majority stake in the company to San Francisco Equity Partners. After experiencing 4,554% growth in three years, Junia felt this was a way to fully take advantage of the booming business. So in 2018, um, you sold your majority stake to a private equity firm. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to do that and what benefit that brought? So if you look, if you kind of look at the Brazi Bites like life and how we grew the brand, you can kind of see different phases. You look at sort of like phase one, it was that pre-Shark Tank era where, you know, the founders made the product and we made it in-house and we bootstrapped the business. And then we go on Shark Tank and the brand really explodes, demand for the product and interest, consumers fall in love and we grew like crazy. Post Shark Tank kind of mentioned to you that sort of million dollars in revenue. The following year, we did 8.5 and then 14. It was just really massive growth. And uh, we became America's third fastest going food company at that time. So it was incredible. And so while we grew that rapidly, what happened in 2018, so you look at about three years post that massive growth is that we look internally and we saw this brand who is super loved and well-received, but we didn't have the team in place to keep up with that. We kind of, we stayed very lean internally. I think there were like five or seven of us running everything. Um, I was wearing, continued to wear multiple hats as a founder, running sales, running marketing, being the CEO of the company. So we looked at that and we said, look, something is going to give. Um, we're not going to be able to keep going this way. We need to reset. We need to rebuild infrastructure internally. We need to rebuild, you know, finance. What is the right team that can continue to develop this brand on these amazing things that we build? So that's why we pursue this deal. And we kind of explore a few paths for the company and the private equity um, segment of the industry really responded to the stage of the brand at that time. So we thought that that was a great next step for us. So what has the private equity firm been able to bring to the table for you guys? Has it allowed you to expand your team internally so you're not running as ragged? Exactly. That was one of the biggest things that they brought to the table and that we went into this transaction in partnership with them, like seeking. Um, and so it's help us build a team, help us put the pillars in place to really make this into an amazing food company that we know we can be because all of, you know, the experience that we've had and how the market was responding to the product. So that's exactly what they've done. And over the last 18 months, they have helped us really build a team and structure the systems that we need for things to flow. 
you know, and our relationships with retailers are getting better and are getting deeper because of the team that we've been able to put in place. So the theme of season two is obviously accidental bakers and snack makers, people who didn't have a background in food and then found themselves here with a successful company, a successful product. How do you think that outsider perspective was beneficial to you as you started Brazzy Bites and as you've grown the company? That's such a good question because we were like huge outsiders. I think there's so many outsiders coming into the better for you space because it's like low barrier to entry at that super early stages. We were just very hungry entrepreneurs that believed in our idea. So think about sort of like your late 20s, hyper, you know, driven and engaged duo who really believes in the idea and believes in the way to learn what we don't know. So we knew we had a ton to learn but we knew we would find a way to learn. And so looking back, it's incredible how little we know and how, you know, right. how much, you know, how complex <laughs> the industry is. I remember in the early days, I got introduced to, you know, one of the head of Safeway Natural by one of my contacts and mentors. And I think it was second or third year. And he's like, guys, do you understand what you're getting into? And at that time, I was, I didn't care. We were so laser focused on our, our product and our idea that I was like, what is this guy talking about? He was, you know, industry veteran and we, we just didn't care. We just showed up in the trade shows, totally naive, totally like doing our best, you know, hyper energetic and really believing in our mission, but a ton to learn along the way, a ton to learn, learn along the way for sure. And your product is so different from anything else on the market. How do you think it's pushing the snack industry forward? Brassy Bites is, is part of a freezer revolution. We are changing the way consumers look at the freezer aisle. When we came into market 10 years ago, I would put this product in front of consumers and people would look for us everywhere but the freezer. And they'll come back and say, you said you're at this store, but you're, I didn't find it. And we said, did you look in the freezer? Like, freezer? Why would I shop the freezer, you know, especially better for you? So we've really worked hard and been a part of that group of brands and leading and bringing consumers back into the freezer and saying, you know what, there's good stuff in the freezer. Freezer is where you're going to find convenience that is better for you. Freezer is, you know, retainer. It's like the freezer is actually replacing the preservatives. Let's look at the freezer differently and the convenience of freezer to oven right? For a snacking, for families that are busy, for younger kids, you know, um, not only for gluten-free, but for a quick side to your dinner. Just changing the way consumers see the freezer and also see convenient snack that's delicious. What is one of the coolest things about our brand is consumers take the bag, they bake it at home, freeze it to oven, and it just puts that amazing smell in their kitchen. It tastes homemade, but it's really convenient. That's awesome. I want some now. I need you to send me some samples. <laughs> I can make that happen. Awesome. I can make that happen. So what was your biggest surprise when you entered the snack industry as a manufacturer? You know, the industry is highly competitive. I would say it's overwhelming when you walk into a store and you walk into a, uh, Expo West and you, and you realize how incredibly competitive it is. And you're like, everybody's out there. How am I going to get a shot at this? 
And you almost have to turn it all off and say, I believe in my product and sort of blinders on a little bit and saying, I'm going to do my very best every single day and the consumers are going to respond. Industry is highly competitive. New brands come into the market every day and um, it's overwhelming. The other piece that was really surprising and it's still kind of, I try to grasp my head and and help other incomers, uh, food entrepreneurs on how at oftentimes uh, the industry is pushing, uh, it's a race to the bottom, right? All the deals and all the discounts and all the, you know, all the slotting. And it's really hard to break through. While it's like really easy to come in and there's low barriers to entry, it's really hard to break through and become viable. That was a surprise. So Junia, as we wrap up our conversation today, I'm just wondering if you can reflect on the snack industry at large, the established snack industry, what do you think they're doing right? The industry is innovating very rapidly. The industry is meeting consumers' needs. There's so much great innovation happening. Brands, Because of the competitive landscape, brands are pushing one another for even cooler and broader innovation. And I think that the industry is really consumer focused right now, as it should be. And that's a great thing. It's great for the consumer, great for, you know, the the competitive landscape that it puts and makes the teams better, makes the teams creative. It's the whole industry thriving right now. As somebody who was an outsider when you got started in this business, What do you think the wider industry could learn from your experience or your perspective? The biggest thing for us from day one was the obsession about product and consumers. Everything that we did and we focused on was like learning from the ground and consumers at the grocery stores. And so this sort of product focus led us to the success that we have today. And so as the companies get bigger, the focus starts to shift, right? They want, you know, some want to focus on growth and put as many products out there they possibly can. And, um, you know, there's different, different focuses out there. And I think that the most successful brands are the ones that are laser focused on products, laser focused on consumers and keep things um, easy to understand yet innovative. Well, Junia, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for being on Some Sliced Bread with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Since Sliced Bread. If you'd like to join the conversation, leave us a voicemail at 816-968-7772. Or you can record a message using the Voice Memo app on your smartphone and email it to podcast at soslin.com. And check out our other podcast, Baking and Snack Audio, for our latest features. Don't forget to subscribe to Since Sliced Bread on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and drop us a review. Since Sliced Bread is a baking and snack podcast produced by Anna Weiber and hosted by Charlotte Ashley. Thanks again for listening.